Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Chiara. Chiara was the first detransition slash desisted woman that I spoke to about a year and a half ago when I began to explore that frame of the transgender gender conversation. And I just wanted to have a chance to check back in on her and chart her development as a young woman in the time of pandemic and protest. And, you know, we talk about her changing ideas over time in this interview. And she's actually incredibly wise woman, especially for her age. I think everybody should have someone like her in their life. And so I'm rather honored to be able to give you a sliver of this individual. And if you are watching the video, our connection was very weak. So the video is kind of stilted from her end. And I apologize for that. But you can always just uh, avert your eyes from the screen or just wait for those little glimpses of animation. She's a very animated individual. And uh, anyways, so without further ado, here's Chiara. You were actually the first detransition female that I spoke to. Uh, and Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I well, I did, I did the four pillars of the Peak Resilience Project. Of uh, course, yeah. And uh, you were number one. I think your, your mother, uh, through her uh, deep state influence <laughs> on social media. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's a great way to describe it. Her <laughs> deep state influence. It's so funny. Yeah. And w- with regards to transition, but, it was more, you never did any of the uh, chemical or hormonal no, stuff. No, no, yeah. never. And so it was It was more of just a frame of reference, right? Do you want to catch us up that? And then from there, we can just see how, how you've been, uh, sure. your, your thoughts are uh, now that time has passed. Oh, that. yeah, absolutely. Um, so just a little summary. Yeah, I, I started identifying as trans when I was, I think, around... Uh, Age 16-ish, it was pretty gradual. I sort of started with non-binary and genderqueer and all that business. Um, yeah. And I identified as trans for probably about two and a half, three years, and then sort of tapered off again through the non-binary, and then finally I just dropped all of it. Um, yeah. I'd say I was totally out of it by about age 20. Um, and yeah, I think we talked about the thing that really helped me was you know being uh, sent off to this horse farm to do uh, actual like work for about nine months, um, which is really, really good for me. It was, you know, cut me off from the internet a lot. There wasn't a lot of connection there. So the internet was the main thing that was sort of feeding into my obsession with the whole like trans and non-binary circles. Um, was it, were you retreating from, uh, some sort of distress with regards to your development as, uh, just somebody with a body and somebody uh, just dealing with what it means to go through puberty and stuff. Was that what attracted you to the gender queer thing or was it something else? Um, I would think there were probably a few factors, some of which I'm still like not totally clear on because hmm. it was, um, you know, knowing me as a person, like I think I always say a lot of it was internalized homophobia. Um, hmm. But I've always thought that was weird because I was never ever raised around anyone who was homophobic. Um, the only thing I can think is, you know, I was such a quiet kid. I was, like painfully shy i didn't speak to anyone except my mom and like one teacher until i was probably 11 or 12. Okay. um hmm. so i was i was very much an internalizer i would say so things tend to not be shared and then you know the more you don't share something the more it snowballs and and sort of gets worse so i think it was um and sort of the whole experience for me like i didn't even really come out to people when i identified as trans it was all very internal so i think um you know had i had a space to share that even it would have been um or had i you know I think I had a space to share it, but I didn't have the maturity or the the ability to do so. So I think yeah. that was a big aspect of it for me. Um, and there is, I think there there was some there was some abuse like in my in my uh, earlier years, um, which I think definitely fed into it. Um, and then just always a feeling of being sort of um, you know being gay and not having any idea I was gay, of course, as a kid. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say the main factors. Yeah, did did being trans 
mean you wanted to be trans or did you want to be a male? That's a good question. Um, and I, I think that's an important question because it really varies person to person. Uh, I think it actually sort of was both for me. Like I, I wanted, I wished I'd been, I wish I'd just been born a man. I didn't want to have to be a trans man. I didn't want to be a woman. I wish I had just, you know, been born the opposite sex. Um, but I think I also somehow at the same time was able to understand that I wasn't actually a man. And I was, again, somehow, even though I was struggling so much with everything, I was able to sort of be content with the fact that I was a trans man and not a real man, you know? So like I was wishing that yes, things were different, that I had been born male, but I also understood that that wasn't a reality and that, Mm. you know, I could transition and be a trans man and be content with that. Was it being male or not being female? If you think, thinking back on it, which, which is the stronger push or the pull? Hmm. I think, you know, that's a great question. Um, I would think maybe I would honestly pretty equal, but I would say maybe a little bit more, wanting to be male Mm. i think just because you know i was a kid i was such a tomboy honestly i still am but even more so as a kid you know i didn't really hang out with many girls you know i was always roughhousing with the boys i was you know doing your stereotypically masculine things or whatever you want to call it Hmm. um and i think i always was sort of like as a kid i don't know if jealous is the right word but that's sort of the closest word i can come up with right now of my male peers and sort of just wanting to be like them and i also there was also a thing of me wanting to be a straight man this was a a big part of it which loops back into the internalized homophobia Mm, i think mm -hmm. i was uh yeah i was i think i was i didn't want i mean i didn't want to be a gay woman i wanted to be i didn't want to be a masculine woman i wanted to be able to be masculine be a man and be normal you know Mm. and yeah so i would say to come back to the question i would say pretty equally balanced because there was a lot of me sort of wanting to escape things that experience as a woman and, you know, not wanting to, you know, grow up as a woman, especially when I hit puberty and, you know, things started happening with male attention. Um, uh, yeah. you know, of course everyone experiences that. Uh, and for me, you know, I, I wasn't really into that and I didn't, some of us more than others. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that it was, um, you, you brought up being really shy. Do you think it was easier to communicate with boys, uh, because it was less communication? It was more hands-on kind of. Oh yeah. Activity? No question. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even now, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself a shy person. I am a little more introverted, I guess, but you know, it's, it's not like I only talk to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but, but I mean, even now it's, you know, I, I would say I pretty have a, I've had a pretty good mix of male and female friends, but it's, it's always a little easier to maybe you know, get to know a guy enough to be friends with him just because men and women just relate differently and are different yeah. in, in their social, you know, uh, strategies and things like that. So hmm. um, I wouldn't say necessarily I prefer being friends with men, but it always has been, yeah, just a little bit easier to, yeah. to sort of get that first layer of friendship, you know. There's an interesting tension here um, between male attention and then male friendship. Uh, mm-hmm. Do, do you do you have thoughts about that? Like like how how do you navigate male attention? I guess on maybe you're we're talking about like just desire, like on a impersonal sure. uh, way in which men as a group uh, pay attention to you as a female or a member of the female class, and then mm-hmm. how you navigate that now? How you became uh, I guess confident or peaceful or sure. I, I get maybe maybe you're even not maybe it's still um, <laughs> a pain in the butt. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, yes and no. So I would say, I think the main, the main thing that sort of made me leery of male attention, I guess, when I was younger is just that, again, I, I was in denial about being gay. I, I didn't really admit to myself why I didn't want this sort of like male sexual attention. Okay, um, yeah. I think now sort of being very, not fully comfortable in myself, you know, but a lot more than I, you know, exponentially more than I was at that point. Um, now, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to, you know, tell a guy, like, oh, thanks, I'm really flattered, but I'm gay, things like that. So it's it's not as much of, like, a stressful thing, you know, to get male attention when you when you sort of understand why you're not really interested in that, if that makes oh, sense. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, huh. I never really thought about that before, but that's, that's what I can think of sort of off the top of my head. That's actually a really interesting question. Um, but I would say, you know, yeah, just with any attention, you know, from anyone or anything that you're, you know, not 
receptive to. I think if you understand why you're not receptive to it, you can, you know, be honest with yourself and be honest with the person. And it doesn't become a big thing of worrying about, you know, why am I not receptive to that? I should be, shouldn't I? You know, hmm. that makes sense. Thinking of young women, uh, teenage girls, uh, that would kind of be, uh, kind of, experiencing something similar to what you've gone through what are some of the you know, key moments of you uh kind of accepting or coming to peace with or uh, just really embodying being uh what you are and, and who you are as a woman um well i think that's another thing that's going to be really personal um yeah. and very unique to the person i think for me i've i've always been very um, connected to animals, connected to nature. I've been really fortunate to, you know, to grow up being outside and having lots of pets and things like that. Um, so I'd say for me, that was a really big thing is, is, um, you know, doing this thing where I was disconnected from the internet, um, which I think is also a main one because I think so many girls, especially, um, of the generation, you know, even younger than me are, are so raised on the internet, you know, even more than I was, um, mm -hmm. and people my age. So, you know, I think let's say number one is, finding a way to remove yourself from the internet, you know, I think is, is a really, really big thing because there's so much just bullshit on the internet that, you know, changes your life in so many insidious ways. Um, but I would say, yeah, um, for me, it was definitely going back to, you know, spending a lot of time outside, doing a lot of physical work with my body. Um, I think physical work is great because, you know, you're feeling disconnected from your body. What better way to, to help that than to, you know, work with it and do physical work. Um, I would say, you know, things like art and music are always great, a really good avenue for expression. Um, I've always been a big writer. I would do lots of writing and, like, poetry and write, even writing songs and things like that. You know, even if they're shitty, it just, you know, get your feelings out onto the page and good stuff like that. So, um, And also, I mean, at the end of the day, I think just emotional maturity is one of the, the biggest things. And uh, unfortunately, that isn't something that can usually be rushed. You sort of have to... Mm. live your experiences and and get older and have bad experiences and have good experiences and build character and all of that so you know i think you know no matter what you do at the end of the day you sort of also have to have faith in yourself that you will you know you will mature and you are growing and changing as a person and you know things that are such a huge deal now um having the ability to say look i'm a kid <laughs> my brain is still growing and developing it'll be better soon i think is a really hard thing to realize for young people, but a really valuable thing to realize. Mm -hmm. And without, um, I guess, necessarily getting into the Peak Resilience Project, what have been your experiences of communicating with uh, people um, in the year and a half, or from a year and a half ago when you guys started that uh, project? And uh, have you get, have you made connections? Have you uh, what's been the things that you've learned or experienced doing that um i think it was i think it was a really good experience um for the most part um as you probably know you know we're disbanded now it's um it's no longer active but uh it was nice i mean the other the other people in the group were were the first um you know detransitioned people that i'd ever met in real life so it was really really nice to sort of find these people with this very unique experience that is the same that was similar to mine not the same um i think that was almost my favorite part of it is just connecting with them um mm -hmm. and finding that community um it was also it was really nice i mean there there was a huge response i think more than we were more than at least i was expecting um just in terms of of people going through the same thing you know mostly young women but some young men as well um who just were telling us that they were so grateful to finally see someone speaking about it and um it felt like their you know their struggle was a little bit more public then and they didn't have to feel so, so alone so you know no matter what you know happened with peak resilience i think that was very very valuable um to all of us and at least to me um yeah have you um Helena uh, of that group uh, mm -hmm. kind of wrangles with uh, ideologies and she's really heady. She's a very heady person and mm -hmm. very talented in that way. Do you have like a frame of reference or have you kind of just uh, let go of like uh, 
I guess with regards to not having a trans kind of view of the world, have you adopted a kind of a feminist or retrofitted some sort of feminism? Uh, or do you, do you even, does it matter to you to have a worldview? And what, what kind of is your worldview of, um, I guess, politically or, or with regards to uh, just ideas of gender? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I think it's really easy to sort of bounce between ideologies. Um, I, I was thinking of it as like, as like a bouncy ball, honestly, just a couple minutes ago. Um, you know, the harder you throw the ball down onto the ground, the harder it's going to ricochet up, right? So the, huh. the harder you dive into one ideology, when you get out of it, the harder you're going to ricochet off into some other ideology, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, as we know, I dove 100% headfirst into this whole trans thing. Um, it consumes my life. It was all I thought about it. It was, in retrospect, absolutely insane. <laughs> um, and then yeah. I would say after that, I sort of bounced right into the whole radical feminist circles, um, which mm. for reference, I no longer in any regard consider myself a radical feminist. Um, Could you uh, kind of define loosely what um, you perceive radical feminism to be about? Or sure. Um, I you? think it's yeah, so it's so for me personally, um, I, you know, I don't want to speak for all radical feminists. I don't have an issue with radical feminists, um, but I think uh, for me it was very much. I sort of got into this. Uh, it was on Tumblr as well, which was the first problem. <laughs> um, oh, these okay. radical feminist circles, and it's sort of a lot of um, women who were, you know, I don't want to say bitter necessarily, but that was sort of what came across a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Is this very strong bitterness towards men? Um, and just a thing of, you know, blaming men for every single thing that's wrong in the world, saying that, you know, men oppress women no matter what, that the patriarchy is huge and existed. All-consuming, yeah. ex all exactly, and permeates every layer of everything always. Um, so it was very, it was very extreme. And I think, hmm. I think I almost like sort of needed, not necessarily that, but I needed to find something that was almost like that to sort of fill my desire for like a community because I was sort of feeling a little disjointed when I was realizing that the trans thing was not for me. Um, yeah. so yeah, you know, I bouncy balled straight from that into the thick of radical feminism. And, uh, yeah, it was just very, very much women, a lot of them for, for good reason. You know, I, I can't blame them to each their own. Um, very bitter about experiences with men, et cetera. Um, but I have since realized that that is not, I just don't really want to align myself with that because, yes, there are some men who are not great to women, but I don't think that's the majority of men by any reach of the imagination. Um, and I sort of was able to realize that and distance myself even from that. So I would say I'm, I'm, at this point I'm really trying to not attach myself to any ideologies. Uh, I've, in all honesty, I've been pretty distanced from all of the trans stuff. Uh, yeah for the past several months, it's just like, honestly exhausting to me at this point, um, because, mm. it, you know, it consumed my life so fucking long. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I think I'm definitely a little bit more sort of spending my time looking at politics at this oh. point, as opposed to, to the trans things. Um, but again, like I said, I'm <laughs> really trying not to get into like the group think and attaching myself to any particular party or ideology or anything like that, because at the end of the day, I think ideology is just hmm. not beneficial, you know. You, you said that the trans thing, I think that's your word for it, Yes, was all con consuming. Do you think it's a, a big enough uh, kind of wheelhouse for culture to develop there? Could, could people like really live full lives in there? And what, what, what kind of is the culture there? Is there art and... and uh, uh, you know, adornment and, you know, things that are more than just the ideas going on in there. And what did you build out of that or, or uh, what attached you to it beyond just uh, a belief in, you know, mm -hmm. the ideology? Was there like a culture there that you latched onto or were creative I mean, with? Yes, actually. I, I don't necessarily know about culture. I might have to think that over a little bit. Um, yeah. But I would think, I think for me, it was just such a such a like tight-knit community um and you know when i first when i first started getting involved in it i didn't realize you know that if you know as soon as you start to question things you're, you're ostracized um it just seemed like this community where you know you could be yourself and for me of course i thought myself was a trans man um 
so I could be, you know, I could be a trans man. I could say, you know, I could say my name is whatever I wanted, my pronouns, my sexuality, gender identity, whatever. Um, and it was just like, if, if you're part of the community, like you're, you're almost like protected and you feel like you have these people who are like you. Um, and for me, I can't really speak to in-person things. Like I never really went to any groups or anything like that. It was all very online. Um, so I don't know how much I can speak on like culture outside of the internet. Um, but just on the internet, on, you know, on Tumblr, on YouTube, um, and definitely on Twitter as well. Um, pretty much any social media, actually, I would say that there's a very strong base of this, this community. And I think it's when you are first sort of identifying as trans or non-binary or whatever you want to identify as, it's very attractive. But as soon as you sort of start wanting to move away from that, you start seeing the issues with it. Um, mm. In terms of culture, the vibe is very much victim, victimhood, which is just sort of another thing that, you know, when you first enter it, you're almost sort of feeling like a victim. In my experience, you know, of course, I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, in my experience, I was sort of feeling victimized. I found this community of people who, like, valid. I hate the word valid, but validated me as a victim. Yeah. And then... It's, it's all, you know, well, of course, it's all about validation. Um, so I would say talking about culture, I don't, in terms of art, I wouldn't say there's any like sort of specific art or like music or sort of styles, but I think it's more about providing community and okay. it's all about validation. So okay. the culture is validation to answer okay. your question. Very huh. long-minded. <laughs> is there, um, did it feel creative to be able to invent your identity did it kind of that aspect or that that kind of phase of it did it kind of inspire you to you know access your potential in, in a way yeah actually i would absolutely say it did um it's because you know it's it's sort of like when you're like in the sims and you're creating your little character and you're like okay i want my hair to look like this so i want my I want to be this buff. I want to wear this kind of clothes. I want to have this girlfriend. And it's, yeah, I, I don't, I guess it's creative. Um, but it's, I think I may have spoken about this before too, that it's about sort of destroying yourself and creating a new self. Oh. And I think that creation can be considered creative, you know, by definition. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's creative in a, a productive way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But was yeah, there, yeah, creating your new persona, definitely. Going from the trans into the radical feminism, or like just from your perspective, without having to say that we're talking about all trans people or all radical feminists, but was there a phase of uh, a similar phase in that transition from that one set to the other set of like recreating yourself and destroying that old person? Was it kind of another cycle of I'm going to destroy my trans identity and reinvent my female identity or, or something like that? Um, I wouldn't say actually that it was quite the same. I think there were some similarities. Um, but I think it was more sort of me almost coming to terms with like the good, the good things about being a woman. And I think I'd been so sucked into like, or I'd been so like focused on all of the bad things about being a woman um, or, you know, the, the struggles of being a woman, et cetera. And I had thought that, you know, being a man was going to help all of this. And then I think I sort of, hmm. I think it wasn't so much destroying that persona and building a new female one, but it was just, more in terms of learning, I guess, oh. and sort of hearing from other people that, you know, being a woman is not all bad all the time. You know, it's not the best thing in the world to be a man either, necessarily. Um, mm. So I think it was different in the sense of it was more of of building myself back up, almost. Not mm, really okay. being reborn, but keeping that sort of foundation and what I'd learned from that trans identity and and, and building upon that back to, to who I was, because I mean, that's a, that's a part of who I was. It's never not going to be. I think a lot of people who I identify as trans in order to sort of kill their old self and become someone new are running from things. I was, you know, of course not everyone, but a lot of people I think are. Um, and I think running from something makes you a lot more likely to want to destroy the self. And then I think sort of coming to terms with your past and then just realizing something's not best for you lends itself more to rebuilding. Hmm. Uh, if that made some sense. No, that's well said. Um, are there... Do you feel like there's a lack of uh, female role models for 
young women or who what would a role model in the internet age look like uh, oh man Alyssa Milano or oh god <laughs> um sorry that I, was that's... a pot shot <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding my tongue. I'm holding my tongue. Um, no, I wouldn't say Alyssa Milano is my role model. We'll just leave it at that. Um, I would say, in terms of role models, I think I think there there are people. Well, bottom line, there are people of all types. There, there's every kind of person in the world that you can find as a role model if you want to. I think there's, mm-hmm. in terms of you know maybe people you see who are famous, who are in movies or music or whatever, for the most part, might not really might look like, you know, normal, like you, you know what I mean? Um, so I think for people who are just sort of not like that, who may be like, you know, gender nonconforming or nonconforming in some other way, I think it could be more difficult to find role models just because they're not as present in, in social media and things like that. But I don't think it's impossible to find them. And I don't think that they are non-existent. I also think that, um, it's easy to think that they are non-existent just because of, you know, online things are so black and white. Um, mm. Things are so all or nothing um, in both, you know, both the trans circles, the rad- radical feminist circles, any other, you know, ideology circles. Um, and I think that just sort of changes your thinking almost um, and your perception of the world. But Cause when you really sort of step back, like you're surrounded by people of, of all types and you can, See, you can find role models all around you if you look for them. Um, hmm. I think just just because there's not necessarily a role model who looks exactly like you in movies, for example, doesn't mean that they don't exist. So I think it's more about fi- find your own role models as opposed to waiting for them to present themselves to you, mm-hmm. which is something that I learned personally hmm. to find my own role models. That is an interesting... Um point you bring up with regards to let's just say uh let's just kind of distill you into horribly distill you into a lesbian um it doesn't seem like your type of person is even uh you have to kind of invent yourself in a way because there isn't um that particular maybe there is a role models of somebody who would who you see yourself in in major media but when we get onto the internet and then you see these identities operating politically and and having all these tug of wars then it kind of uh, gives gives i could see how it gives an image of of anybody who's looking for a role model and whether consciously or not just seeing all this activity on the internet is only one kind of uh, aspect of what people are presenting and, mm-hmm. and, and then trying to shape yourself into uh, a person in, in the, in a culture that is obsessed with activism, whether pro-activism or anti-activism. Uh, yeah. I, I think that we could all do a, a lot of work um, regardless of age of actually trying to bring more uh, varied uh, sorts of selves into mm-hmm. being uh, on, on the internet, but yeah. probably we're just not too incentivized to do that. And No. And especially, you know, the internet's not going away. Social media is not going away. It's not going much anywhere. as we may wish it would sometimes <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, so I think I don't, it's just like a weird, just time to live in. Like that's, all I can really think of. I mean, that's exacerbated, of course, by 2020 being such like a shit show in so many ways. It's just so weird. Um, but just in general, I mean, as, I mean, especially now, yeah, that, that everyone's sort of in their house and on social media and on the internet even more because they, they can't interact with each other really um, mm. as, as they, to the extent that they did before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's almost even harder to find role models and to find people who, you know, find your community and things like that. And it's, it's much easier now to get sucked into these internet circles because there's just, there's so many more people mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. So. Are you comfortable? Uh, I, this might be too personal of a question, but um, <laughs> what, what is your take on politics? My take on politics. Well, that's a broad question. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I am I, like, what are you like most interested in right now? I guess. What am I most interested in? Um, well, I've been very closely following the whole, you know, George Floyd situation, the Black Lives Matter situation. Um, mm-hmm. I, 
just the whole, I think that that has sort of become like the thing now in terms of politics. It almost feels to me like, you know, in an election, you know, you want to look at the candidates, you want to weigh the pros and cons in terms of, you know, not just social justice, but, you know, economics and every other aspect of them, right? It feels to me now that as this election approaches, you're sort of voting for the BLM movement or you're voting against it. Really? It feels like it's it's sort of come down to this very narrow thing where you, maybe this is just my perception. I may be, you know, totally off base, but for, from what I've felt, it, it feels like it's much more, it's just a much more narrow sort of frame of, or, or field of view in terms of what you can focus on and, and what you're voting for, if that makes sense. So, you know, in that vein, I, I feel that that's the main thing that most people are focusing on at the moment, just because it's, you know, and I mean, that also comes down to, you know, people are at home, not working, you know, they got plenty of time. So they're either protesting and, or rioting or they're following it. And it's, um, mm. You know, it's ever changing. I think it's, you know, it's a situation that's changing every day in terms of who's involved and who's, you know, sort of counter doing the counteractivism and, and things like that. But yeah. Yeah, I think that's been that's sort of become the main focus, not just for America, but you know, for a lot of other people in the world too have been following it as well. Um, Do you see threads between um your trans identity and then the feminist identity and then what's kind of calling you on a political sphere with regards to uh, Black Lives Matter? Is there something similar about um, like the uh, demand to make this a part of your identity or the the, uh, the pull, the gravity to make it a part of your identity either for or against? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so a lot of the people who are... Um, you know, sort of a, a part of the, the Black Lives Matter movement who were out, uh, you know, in the cities every night looting, um, or the people who are peacefully protesting. Um, I don't want to generalize. Uh, but I think I would hazard to say a, a vast majority of them are the sort of the same people, because I would say most of them are very young, are of my age, and are sort of of the, also of the queer theory ideology, um, just based on what I've seen online and how much of it is, how much of the people sort of protesting are, are saying things like Black Trans Lives Matter, um, things like that. That's been such a huge aspect of it. I think that those two ideologies, well, I don't want to call them both ideologies. Those two sort of movements are yeah. very intertwined, if that makes sense. I see, I see a lot of similarities. Um, I think you brought up a good point about being forced to make it part of your identity. I think that absolutely is a huge, huge issue in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, just, um, you know, for me personally, I don't use Instagram much, but I'll go on there and I'll look at my friends' stories, you know, and they're all posting things like, uh, <laughs> you know, Black Trans Lives Matter, or, um, you know, here's what you can do, here's what you should be doing, spend 10 minutes of every single day emailing to bail out these people who are looting the stores, you know? And it's all about, you know, internalize, uh, learn, you know, yeah. relearn, unlearn. Educate. And then, of course, you know, a side note of that is hearing about all these sort of education camps for, like, white men <laughs> to unlearn their male privilege. I mean, it's scary shit, honestly. Um, what What is scary about it to you from your perspective? Well, I mean, how much influence it has, I would say. The number mm. of people who don't realize sort of the almost like insidious parts of the movement and how how somehow this movement can can hide these insidious parts and 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 gain so much traction mm. and almost almost even not hide them or poorly hide them and still gain so much traction if that makes sense i mean if you if you look at things like you know george floyd for example for example you know of course that man did not deserve to die under any circumstance. I think we're all agreement on that. I, the way he kneeled on his neck was completely, in my opinion, reprehensible. But at the same time, you also can't argue that he was murdered for being black, right? So I think the people that are making everything about race, even in situations like that, I think it's detrimental. And I think that it, well, I, I know based on statistics that it's de decreasing, you know, 
race relations. Um, and it's just creating this huge amount of animosity. And it's just the thing of turning the middle class against each other, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of a movement. And I mean, it's frustrating to me because all of these, all of my friends who are sort of posting these things and, you know, a lot of it is very unscientific, um, and the thing is, you know, these people look at these outcomes between, you know, black and white people, and they only look at it as a sort of univariate thing, where in reality, there's so many different factors that, that go into things like, you know, income rates, poverty rates, um, shootings by police, education, incarceration. I mean, you know, one example, I actually saw something really interesting the other day was that the most common age for black Americans is 27, and the most common age for white Americans is 58. And what do you mean the most been, common age? The most common age in America are the median age. Okay. I would say, so it skews much older for white Americans than black Americans. Yeah. And um, I'll, maybe I'll send you the link to that so you can take a look or post it. Either way, I thought it was very, very interesting. Um, you'd probably like it. Um, but that's just sort of a side note. Like, you know, the median age for white people is, is higher than the median age for black people. And that is something that would factor into something like incarceration, for example. Obviously, young people commit crimes more often, go to jail more often than older people, I would say. So I just, the fact that things like that aren't sort of taken into accounts, I guess, Mm -hmm. in these conversations makes me really leery of aligning myself with the Black Lives Matter movement, if that, Mm -hmm. you sort of get where I'm coming from in that regard. I think there's a similarity um, with regards to the trans movement and not trans people, but certain aspects of the movement and the way that it kind of uh, can possess or cause people to obsess about it in the way in which you did as a teenager. There's something within that community, the way it's formed and what it charges itself with providing, being validation and, and uh, the escape from victimhood, probably some form of justice. There's a, there's a lot of overlap in certain dynamics within that community and certain dynamics within certain functioning um, Black Lives Matter themed uh, political activity. There's uh, and and the, that's kind of why I went from studying Evergreen to studying the trans um, kind of topic just mm-hmm. through the activist lens and watching how these currents form community uh, and then decrease dissent and uh, collate information always to go in a certain direction which is agreement mm-hmm. towards I guess some sort of oh, end absolutely. and what I find fascinating about um, people in your situation people have gone through the trans idea identity and then uh, kind of come out the other side is that um, and and there's there's Every person's completely different, so I don't mean to uh, diminish the resolution of what I'm talking about, but there's some sort of passage that you've made that uh, inoculates you, um, and maybe it takes several ideologies to go through before you're inoculated, but kind of inoculates you towards the groupthink. Um, so trying to have these conversations to get your insight into what is so possessive about these movements. Why is it that these people, these young people are out there doing a lot of destruction and not really thinking about the fallout of their destruction because they're on a a path and, and how to wake them up or give them tools to be aware of how they're being perceived in a way. Oh man, I wish that was possible. (laughs) (laughs) And more than 1% of people. But, what do you um, think the fallout's going to be for, I guess, people in, in your generation or kind of your age group? Oh, man, I don't even know if I can predict that because um, I I can't see it happening anytime soon. Okay. I mean, I, I wish it would sort of start happening. But, I mean, the thing is, I think that a lot of these things, like the trans thing and even Black Lives Matter, is that it it, it comes from a place of, you know, wanting to help people who they believe are, are, and who may be marginalized in various ways, of course, because, I mean, for me, when I think about Black Lives Matter, I mean, first of all, of course, the statement, like, Black Lives, of course, they do matter. Um, and I do believe that there is, you know, racism, and that is a level of something that should be considered. Um, I just think that it, it goes, you know, a little too far, and it's easy to sort of 
see something that may or may not be racism, for example, and, you know, as most people are, you know, want to, to help others is what I've experienced, especially from my generation. And it's very much a wanting to support each other and to support the, the marginalized people. Um, but it just goes a little bit of a step too far because there's no stopping to think about whether something is fully true or whether it's like scientifically accurate, for example, you know, for example. Um, hmm. And then there's sort of this desire to be so inclusive and to be so supportive of one another that hmm. it's almost like these they're incapable of thinking critically about something when thinking critically might make them seem like they're being like phobic or something. Um, mm. So in terms of the fallout, I mean, I honestly, I don't know. To me, it does seem like the tide is, I am optimistically saying that the tide is kind of turning a little bit. I think the people who have sort of been quietly just being like, oh, it's just kids being kids, you know, are sort of starting to realize that these kids have a lot more power than they sort of realized mm. before. And I think a lot of people who were previously silent, um, you know, even like the silent majority, if you want to call it that, um, I do think it's a majority, are sort of starting to push back a little bit against it. I mean, you know, for example, videos of, you know, you'll see people in neighborhoods coming out and telling the Black Lives Matter protesters, like, get out of my neighborhood or, you know, stop doing this. I saw this great video actually this morning of... Um, a neighborhood in Chicago of, of people just trying to calmly engage the, the protesters. I'll send you the oh. link to it if you want. I'll yeah, it. Um, it was, yeah, it was just one example of, you know, people just starting to sort of try to engage them and say, look, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing because again, like I said, I, I do think it comes from a good place in, in most of these people. I, I really do. Um, and I, in a, in a way I even actually admire that because even if they're not really thinking things through, they're still like throwing their lives behind this movement. Um, and it, it's not a you know good motivation for everyone, but I think for a lot of people, it, it comes from a good place. Um, but I think there is starting to be a little bit of a pushback. And I, I don't know how much, how receptive the sort of the protesters have been to it so far. I think it's still sort of in the early stages. I, I, I also I don't know anyone who's protesting. I don't live in a big city, so I'm not seeing it firsthand. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, <laughs> take everything I see on Twitter with a grain of salt, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like there's sort of a little bit, and I'm seeing sort of more things, or sort of you know, people with bigger platforms sort of starting to say like, you know, this. Some aspects of this movement maybe seem a little misguided. Like, the bottom line is yes, it's for a good cause, but let's think of a different way to look at things, and let's bring in a little bit more, you know, some a little bit more of like scientific analysis even on these things and and think about them a little bit more rationally and and realize that we have to help everyone you know not just one one group of people mm -hmm. so you perceive that there will be there will be a moderate pushback rather than an extreme pushback to the radicalism that we're witnessing well i think i think there's both um i think that there's I think that there's a very large amount, actually, of people who are generally, like, you know, pretty, like, far right, I would say, sort of the opposite of the super far left progressives, um, mm. who are, you know, like, the own the libs type, <laughs> um, and who just sort of, like, want to say that, no, nothing is racist, or no, like, you know, stop being stupid, et cetera, et cetera, grow up, get a job. And um, I think that's been a, a, a fairly vocal part, and I think, honestly, the more the radicals push back against each other, just the more radical they each get, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, I think the moderate pushback, um, I think it is happening. Uh, I would say I see a lot of people who are, you know, more centrist, who are maybe like the classic liberal or um, even center-right, who are just sort of coming together. I think the center might also be sort of coming together. Like the moderate Republicans and the moderate Democrats are using this as an opportunity to find common ground and say, look, these... <laughs> These kids are out of control, and also it's not really great that these like far right whatever groups are pushing back in the way that they're pushing back. And I think that there's a growing number of moderates or centrists or whatever you want to call them who, and I think I would consider that the silent majority. You know, you can call them Republicans or Democrats, but in the in comparison or relative to the far left and far right, I would now consider them moderate. You know, a big group, and that's what I consider the silent majority. Um, and I think.
just the fact that they are the majority, I think I think that there will be a pushback in terms of, you know, voting power and things like that. Uh, hmm. So I'm again, it's, it's such an evolving situation. Um, this is all speculation. It, it could go <laughs> completely down the tubes one way or the other. Like, <laughs> at this point. I'm trying to just keep my ex. I like I'm making predictions, but I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So yeah. um, it's just such like a weird again. It's such a weird year. It's every single day. There's some new shit that comes out and there's some new people yelling at each other online and on the streets. <laughs> and it's fucking exhausting with the bottom line. But um, OK, it's also interesting. So do you, are you hopeful? Uh, do you, do you feel like the world is ending or do you feel like it's, uh, just going through a process? What's your, if you project your kind of, um, your, your intuition onto the situation, do you think that we're, it's a phase that we're going through? Do you, do you think that we're in a dangerous time? Like what's your read? Well, again, my opinion changes depending on, you know, the day. Um, yeah. I, I don't think the world is ending. I don't think that I don't think that the world will end if Trump gets elected and I don't think the world will end if Biden gets elected. And I don't think the world will end if you know, before that, regardless of the election. I, I don't think it will, but I think there will be very different outcomes. And I think there's gonna be some sort of strife that gets worse before it gets better almost. Um, I'm kind of hopeful that you know, like I said, the silent majority, the moderates will will be able to find a way to speak to both extremists' sides and find a way to sort of, you know, calm them down a little bit and and you know, preach the whole unity and things like that. And but I'm hopeful that that will happen. I'm not super super confident. Um, I kind of feel like, the, like I said, it might get a little worse before it gets better. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, the, the protesters and rioters, there's been lots of things of, you know, you'll never stop us, you can't suppress us. And I, you know, on the one hand, a lot of these people are, are really young and idealistic, but on the other hand, like, they do have a lot of power, whether we like it or not. And they have a lot of influence now, especially with, you know, a lot of people in government, you know, giving them immunity, people not really getting arrested for, for the things that they're doing. Um, so I, I do feel that it's sort of going to be, like, I don't want to say we're going to get into a civil war, but, like, the most extreme possibility that's still kind of possible is we get into a civil war when the election time comes. I think hmm. that it, it really is just going to depend on how these last few months go leading up to the election and then, of course, who is elected. Um, so I don't think the world's going to end, but I think my prediction is that it'll get a little bit worse, but then it will get a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll take it. If it gets a lot better, I'm happy for it to get worse for a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe the world will end, you know? Maybe it will. <laughs> I love After how happy-go-lucky you are. <laughs> yeah, man, honestly, man, I don't give a shit at this point. Like, <laughs> I've been through so many different, like, ideologies and aligning myself with so much stuff at this point. I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to do me, and hmm. I just... It is what it is, you know. At the end of the day, you can you can do as much as you can. You can talk to people. You can try to change people's minds if you want to. You can, you know, try to change as many things. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of things sort of have to almost run their course. Um, that was sort of even how I felt, you know, when I was trans-identified. Looking back, I mean, hmm. there wasn't anything that could have really made me not feel that way when I did. I, it sort of had to, you know, run its course. Like, my mom could keep me from physically transitioning, but I had to go through it myself, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So I think it's sort of the same, yeah, the same concept of, at the end of the day, sometimes, you know, you just have to keep things in check, but let them, let them run themselves out. Mm-hmm. Do you have any horsey tips? <laughs> any horsey tips? Um, tips on horse uh, care? Or... Tips on horse care? Or, oh, uh, I, I, understanding the horse, like, how does one enter into a relationship with the horse? I think horses are horses are very, very sensitive animals. Um, hmm. I've been around them since I was a really little kid, so I've I've been able to interact with many different types of horse personalities, and they have okay. such a huge variety in terms of their personality. It's incredible um, when you start 
you know, meet, it's like, it's almost like meeting a person, you know, the personality is so different um, among horses and they're, they're very sensitive and they're, they're very uh, stoic, but they're also, um, yeah, they're, they're sensitive. So they're, they're animals. People don't really realize how sort of respectful you need to be of them, you know, mm. first of all, because they can kill you if they want to. <laughs> I've been kicked by a horse. It's not pleasant, oh, um, no. but also just because it's, you know, it's a living being. And I think a lot of people sort of see horses as, um, like a, a working animal, which often they are, right? But they're they're very sensitive and they're very um, a lot of them are very personable. Like my horse, I've had her for ten years now, and she'll um, she'll walk up to me and you know she'll let me hug her and if I bribe her with treats, of course. Oh. Um, but um, you know, you really develop a relationship with a horse if you if you spend enough time with it, and um, I think that can be really rewarding. So I think for anyone who sort of like is interested in horses, it can be good to to know that it is worth it to sort of get to know a horse and to um build that relationship because it's when a horse likes you, like maybe it's just me being a horse nerd, but that's one of the most like incredible feelings when a horse will allow you to like give it a hug and pet it because they're just such sweet animals and they're, I don't know. I love them. They're great. (laughs) What do you think the horses taught you about yourself? What, what did you find about, find about yourself or learn about yourself through that relationship? Lots and lots of patience. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yes, lots of patience. Horses are not um, an animal like, you know, like for a dog, you know, not always, but a lot of dogs, you can train it, a, train a trick, you know, in like an hour even or a day. A horse, it's, it's a process. Huh. Um, in my opinion, it's more rewarding than training dogs, but um, that's just me. But um, it, is a, it is an extended process. You have to be patient. You have to... Uh, keep understanding that it's a, a sensitive, you know, being that needs time to emotionally reflect on things. And, um, yeah, I, I know that sounds so ridiculous, but it is like horses huh. have a very strong emotional presence. Um, I think there's actually been studies done on it. I'll have to look into it again. Um, I remember a while back I was doing some reading on like horse emotions and, um, like they can feel grief, like almost like elephants, not, not quite as, um, I think extreme emotions as elephants. Um, but fairly similar i think in their emotional patterns uh and yeah so definitely learning patience and Hmm. and uh adapting to yeah the learning style of an animal you're training and and learning how to train an animal sensitively and Hmm. and nicely to it you know and i think just sort of with any animal just building a relationship you know again is Mm -hmm. is rewarding and it will teach you things just based on that animal's personality and and your personality and how you interact with it. And, um, mm. also, you know, it, it really hurts when you fall off a horse. So you learn how to, uh, <laughs> recover from injuries really well. Oh, geez. And out of the way if, uh, they get scared. Um, did you learn about your own, um, I guess, strength? I want to use the word will, um, and the will of the horse and, and entering into like training the horse or causing the horse to obey you. And, did you learn about your own strength and, and pliancy at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, actually. Um, but I think, you know, with a horse with, uh, just like, you know, with a dog, you, you have to strike that balance between discipline because you have to make sure, you know, you don't want a dog that goes and bites people or jumps on people and you don't want a horse, you know, the huge animal who shoves you and gets in your space cause it's dangerous. Right. Um, so there's that balance that you have to strike between, hmm you know, very fair discipline, um, you know, not punishment and being punitive, but very fair discipline and also encouraging the growth of the animal, you know? So I think learning, um, yeah, I think you learn a lot about yourself because you, you know, when an animal does something like bad or whatever you want to call it wrong, you know, um, that you don't want them to be doing, you have to sort of, it's good to see like what your first reaction is to that. And, you know, if your first reaction is to, you know, to punish, for example, you learn that about yourself and you can learn how to hmm. redirect almost instead of instead of doing that. And um, even the opposite, you know, if, if an animal does something and your first reaction is to sort of shrink away and let it happen, you sort of have to, like, grow the balls to <laughs> be able to, um, mm-hmm. you know, be a leader and be in control. Yeah. Uh, you know, like horses and dogs, they're pack animals. If you establish yourself as a leader, you know, and you don't take any shit, but at the same time, you know, you're not unfair, you're kind, you're 
you know, you treat them with respect, then I think the training comes easily. So I think it's Hmm. learning how to be that. Training animals and working with animals almost teaches you how to be a leader in a lot of ways because with an animal, you know, they can't speak to you. So you have to go by body language and you have to sort of almost go by intuition in in a lot of ways and learn how to be a very quiet but effective leader. And I think that's like an invaluable lesson. I wish more people would work with horses. Huh. <laughs> has that, how has that translated into your perception of human beings? Well, I think, man, great question. Um, I think human beings sort of have a tendency to react very quickly or even go straight towards derision or punishment or something like that. Not, you know, not everyone, but I think, I think we sort of have that reaction in us a little bit more than we think some of the time, um, some people. Uh, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's very different working with something, you know, where you can't use your, your language. So I think it's, um, it's useful just to, to sort of change, like, I don't want to sound like too much of a hippie, but like change your energy almost and the way you sort of present yourself to people. Um, and I, hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's very different um, than working with people, but it, I think it, you know, it translates um, across very, um, very well. Are there different belts for horse uh, riding, like karate? And where are you at? Are you like the master horse master? Or oh my god, there's no junior belts, master horse. Honestly, there should be. That's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, suggest that to the board of horse people. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the Equitarian uh, Council. Yeah, you know, North America. Um, that's really funny, actually. I, uh, I mean, there's sort of like things like when you're riding a horse, like things that you learn, like usually in a sort of similar order it depends on of course who's teaching you um your instructor and again of course it depends on the horse that you're with as well uh but you know generally first you'll learn um you know how to take care of it on the ground you know how to brush the horse put all the the equipment on it and things like that um and then you know you'll start with walking around being led and get your balance um because it takes a lot of balance to ride to ride a horse you know the first time you're on one it's it's a pretty weird feeling, you know, you're on this moving thing and it's like, it's like one of those bucking Bronco things at a bar Yeah. <laughs> almost in the sense of like how you have to hold on. Um, so it's, it's a gradual process, but, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of similar to belts. I would say there's some, there's some different milestones that you learn. Of course, it depends but are, on what are you, to. are you a black belt at this point? I wouldn't say I'm a black belt. I, oh, no, I don't okay. know what belts are. Let's say like, one or two down from a black belt. Oh, okay. The black belt is like the people riding like professionally, um, okay. international competition, things like that, like at the top okay. level. I would say, I would say I'm, I'm pretty good. I would. I've been, I've been riding for like, man, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I know what I'm doing, but I definitely am not an expert, I would say, on everything to do with horses. But yeah, whatever there. the belt is, too removed from black. <laughs> Well, this is thanks for uh, the chance to catch up. Oh yeah, I, I like to. I mean, sorry to to treat you like a subject, but it, it's really nice to get snapshots of you and and Helena and other people because time is something that we don't really respect, and mm-hmm. and development is not something that we really respect, and so just kind of witnessing and checking back in is, I think, really valuable and it's fun mm-hmm. and it's great to. Oh, have. Yeah. Yeah, just like I was saying with the emotional maturity, like you can realize it's going to happen. I mean, if we talk another year and a half from now, I'm sure I'll be a completely different person <laughs> in some ways. So uh, it's almost it's almost like freeing to sort of realize that, you know, uh, maybe I'm not as mature or maybe I don't know as much or have the ability to express myself in a certain way. But like I, I can find comfort in like the faith that I will eventually find that maturity and I will find that ability eventually. So I think that's been very very beneficial and i i really think that it's cool how you how you're doing snapshots of people i think it's interesting to see just in in that aspect of watching people mature i think it's it's cool um but also yeah just to see how people's opinions change and what ideology they're with now and (laughs) things like that i think i think it's great i really respect that i think it's a great strategy yeah it Um, seems like you're into the uh radical centrism getting pretty hardcore moderate yep 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Don't say it like that. Now I'm <laughs> too much. I'm gonna stop the recording now. Sweet. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.